With that, though, let's get on into Corinthians then. And now that we're recording, I just want to say for everyone who's listening that this introduction into Corinth that Paul gives thankfulness to God for the congregation there is important because it demonstrates to the Corinthians and to all of us that the majority that he was addressing were perhaps Christian and that they would, in fact, heed his warnings and they, in fact, then would persevere. And so he considers these people that he's giving warnings to brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I'm going to give you a brief outline here. We're going to be looking at the introduction again, and it breaks down into the salutation in the first three verses. Then we have thanksgiving, verses 4 through 9. And if you remember, this is in the big section where there is a response to all the reports that immediately follows. And that goes from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. And that's where we'll be heading then into that section next time. So we see here again that Paul is the apostle of Christ right in the beginning. It's very important to remember that Paul would lay out his credentials. Why? Well, because the Corinthians were taking him to task. They were saying, well, what kind of apostle are you? You don't have the same type of rhetoric that Apollos does, and you don't sound as spiritual as we do. We understand gnosis, and we understand wisdom But what about you, Paul? And so they were challenging him. So it's very important that he lays out his apostolic credentials. So he says, 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Susthenes, our brother. Now, again, the apostle of Jesus Christ, this whole idea of an apostleship originated in the Old Testament concept of the Shaluach. And the Shaluach, if you remember the first sermon that I gave out of the book of Titus, the Shaluach was one who represented the authority of the king. And we see examples of this, for instance, like in 1 Samuel 25, when David sends his men to confront Nabal and to ask for some support, Nabal ends up mistreating horribly David's men. And because they were the representative or the shluach, the sent ones, who were they in fact mistreating? Well, the king himself. And so this idea then is transported into the New Testament. So if you don't listen to an apostle, a sent one, who has the very authority of Christ himself because he's portraying Christ's words, if you neglect the words of the apostle or you somehow abuse or malign the apostle, you're in essence abusing or maligning or rejecting the message of the king himself. And so it's very troubling. Now, in our day and age, there's a lot of people that are claiming that we have modern-day apostles. That is what I like to call theological hogwash, okay? And it's just because I have no other term for it. But let me give you four, remember, four criteria. And I know we've talked about this before, but I'm going to go over it again. It may be repetitious for some of you, but some of you may be the first time you've heard of the four criteria that one had to have in order to call themselves an apostle. Number one, You had to be with Jesus from the beginning. And we see evidence of this, for instance, in John 15, 26 through 27. Who had that passage? Oh, yeah, Jim. John 15, 26 and 7. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Yeah, so right away you see this indication, because you've been with me from the beginning. Okay, so we see this doctrine start to develop that those who have been with Christ from the beginning, they're going to be his unique representatives and they will speak the very words that Christ spoke and they will in fact teach the people of God the things 
that Christ has spoken. How about who had Acts 1, 21 through 22? I want to go through these because I want everybody to see how this doctrine develops or how we understand an apostle from the New Testament scriptures. Acts 1, 21 and 22. Yeah. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Yeah, notice the term there, it is necessary. I believe that's probably day in the Greek. I didn't look it up recently, but day remembers the divine necessity. So if you look in the Greek text, it would be D-E-I is the way it looks to us. And that is the divine necessity. So it is of the divine necessity. So it's not just um, something that these guys are coming up with. That is the apostles or disciples. It's the divine necessity. And notice that they're with them from the beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up. So again, that corresponds to exactly what was spoken of in John 15, 26 through 27. And Keith, you have something. Yeah, First Corinthians 6 through 8. I, mean, I think I'll start at 3 because I think it's... Oh, yeah, yeah. I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's claiming there that he's an apostle, and he doesn't meet criteria one because he wasn't with them from the beginning. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to talk about. It's interesting is what he says is he is one who was untimely born. And what's interesting is he's admitting that he wasn't with Christ from the beginning, but what's interesting is he's brought up to this standard. Why? Because he's actually taught by Christ himself. But then if he's an apostle and he wasn't with him from the beginning, criteria one isn't true. Well, what I'm saying is criteria, it's not that criteria one isn't true. It's just that in this case, Paul is brought up to that standard. You know what I'm saying? But I think that Acts 1 is talking about they're trying to replace someone to be a witness. It doesn't say to have authority, just to be a witness. In John 15, when Christ tells them they are going to be witnesses because they were with them from the beginning. It doesn't correlate. If, if, if okay. Paul wasn't there from the beginning, it can't be true. Yeah, I, I, I still, I would say that it is. And I'll tell you why. I think that this standard Paul is brought up to, and again, the reason why is we see, and we're going to read that passage in Galatians, is because he is instructed, in fact, he's instructed by Christ personally for three, I, I agree, but what I'm just saying is I think that's even why Paul is admitting that he's not one who is normally born. It is It would be normally something that would exclude an apostle, but in this case, God in essence is saying he would personally instruct Paul in a different way than the rest of them were. For instance, John, Peter, Matthew, they could not claim, as Paul did, I don't think, to be personally instructed for three years personally. Now, were they with Christ for three years? Yes. So my point is, it's interesting in Galatians 1 that Paul is taught for three years. Well, how long were the disciples taught? Well, it was for for three years. And so what I'm just saying is, I would look at the standard. The typical standard is that you had to be with Christ from the beginning. Paul is acknowledging that he doesn't uh, he is one who is untimely born, and therefore he is brought to that standard. That's how I would argue it. Um, in fact, who has the Galatians 1, 15 through... 18, do you have that one? 
I think the reason why Paul has to explain this carefully or has to get into this is because of this very issue, in my opinion. Galatians 1, 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. Yeah. So, so here we see that he's instructed for three years by Christ. Now, before I get back to that, let me just keep moving because I want to look at the other criteria. The second criteria that we have is they did the miraculous deeds that would demonstrate that they are God's personal spokesman. So who had the Acts 5, 12 through 16? Acts 5:12-16 And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico but none of the rest dared to associate with them however the people held them in high esteem And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Yeah, notice it was they they were all being healed. I think that's a form of pas in Greek, so all of them were being healed. Now, interestingly enough, today, let's say you have a a sick relative. I have a sick wife right now who has a fever. Bob has a sick or uh, broken wife (laughs) with a bad knee. Let's say we pray for someone. Can God heal? Sure, he can heal. But notice that the apostles, when they're doing this healing, they're batting a thousand. They're not missing. Why? And, and in fact, they're doing miraculous signs and wonders that are, you can't attribute them to just normal, everyday healing that you would get from a doctor. Why? Well, because God is demonstrating through the miraculous that these are, in fact, his personal spokesmen. Now, one other item, Keith, let me just get back to this item that you brought up just about being with Christ from the beginning and I just want to talk about that in Hebrews 2. We see another passage. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And again, the idea would be by those who heard would seem to correspond to me to the idea that you had to be with Christ from the beginning. That would be the idea of the apostles. Yeah. But it, if it... If Paul is one of the greatest apostles and you had yeah. to be with him from the beginning and God doesn't rewrite time. I'm it's sorry, not, say, say the last part again. God doesn't rewrite time. It's like healing of the memories. We don't go back in time and actually change stuff. Yeah. Time happens in a linear fashion and he wasn't there. No, Therefore, I understand. he was personally instructed and he does meet Hebrews sure. because he was personally instructed by Christ. And I think it, I'm saying this and I'm so, yeah. so strong in this because this exception, being with Christ from the beginning... If Paul's an exception, then everybody else can be exceptions, and Peter Wagoner can be exceptions. There is no, no exception when you say that Paul was 
personally taught by a resurrected Christ, then there's no exceptions. And I think that's a stronger way to put it because there's no exceptions they can make either. Right. What I'm just saying is normatively the way an apostle was is they were with Christ from the beginning. And I think that is why Paul, and I can't prove it, but I, that, I think that's why Paul is saying he's one who's untimely born. Why? Well, he was brought to that standard. He, he was brought, he, re, he saw the resurrected Christ after the resurrection, and that's how I would interpret untimely born. As I agree. In fact, I'll, I'll get into that is a criteria. However, there are those who did see, in fact, Christ that were not apostles, and they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection as well. Now, there's two reasons why I don't think, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, there were over 500 brethren that saw the resurrection. Now, why weren't all of them apostles? Well, for two reasons. Number one, they were not called. Okay? But two, normatively, you had to be with Christ from the beginning. And so there's two criteria that I would say that the 500 brethren who are eyewitnesses are two criteria that they did not meet. Number one, they were not called. And being called means that you're not just electing yourself or choosing yourself to be an apostle. And two, they were in fact... Jude yeah. wasn't with him from the beginning. And Jude I'm, I'm sorry? Jude wasn't with Jude. him. And he was, he was also an apostle and wrote... I, I agree. Yeah. So he wasn't with him from the beginning either. But 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 he was, I, I think, um, in in the sense that, I mean, for instance, in John chapter 7, in John chapter 7, even Jesus' own brothers initially didn't believe in him. Right, and, so that you he know couldn't be there from the beginning, but he was personally instructed by Jesus. Yeah. He did actually have but, but he, the resurrection I'm sorry, to just, uh, we have to go on, but anyway. the, the one thing is, is I think that Jude was with him from the beginning because how could he initially not believe in Jesus in fact, in John chapter 7, it says that his own brothers did not believe in him. So, anyway, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one, Keith. But, again, I think, you know, the way you're saying it, it's not, it's not a bad way of reasoning to say, yeah, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. I would affirm that. But remember, there's over 500 witnesses to the resurrection, and not all of them were apostles. Why? Well, because not all of them were called. And you could say, well, that's the only limiting factor. But also, the normative way is that you had to be with Christ from the beginning. Not um, all who were with Christ from the beginning were also apostles either. The, the, the reasoning of... If one yeah, is, I, I agree. There's I'm at just least saying. another one that when they had Matthias and the other one, he was not called an apostle even though he met that criteria as well. Well, Matthias, we're not sure if he was with Christ from the beginning or not. He certainly wasn't one of the 12, but we're not, we're, we, we don't have the data to say that he wasn't with them from the beginning. Terms. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, let me, um, let me move on here to number three then. Um, and this is a, this is the big one that Keith is talking about. This has to be there in order for you to be uh, an apostle. You had to see Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And we see this, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Who had uh, that passage? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Yeah, so there you see that he is, in fact, an eyewitness to the resurrection. And again, there were over 500 brethren that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. However, Paul is an apostle, and he is, in fact, has this testimony that he is, in fact, called to be an apostle, in fact, that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 1.1. But again, we see that if you didn't see the resurrected Christ, you're not an apostle. Now here, this is important because... Think about all of the false prophets and apostles today that they're claiming to be apostles. Well, they can't be. Why? Well, were they with Christ from the beginning? Did they do miraculous deeds? And do they, in fact, have, or I should, I should say, have they seen the resurrected Christ? No. 
And so therefore, they cannot be an apostle. And finally, number four, they were called. And we see examples of that in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. In this calling, it's interesting that Paul makes a point to say that he is called here. And this calling, of course, is from God. Now, it's interesting. Gordon Fee talks about this calling. I would typically look at it as an idea of election. In other words, the idea that a Paul, and, and certainly this idea is there, the idea that Paul, from all of eternity, was called to be an apostle. He was elect for that purpose. However, and, it, and by the way, it's by the will of God. However, Gordon Fee says, yes, that's all true, but it's also his vocation. And the reason why Gordon Fee wants to talk about Paul's vocation is because it's going to be juxtaposed up against the vocation of the Corinthian congregation. They are the saints and therefore they must listen to their apostle. And so in the next few verses, you're going to see the vocation by calling of the Corinthian saints. Okay, now, does that mean they're elect? Oh, yes. But notice, they're different than Paul. He is their apostle, and they therefore must listen to him. That's the idea. So Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, and he writes in verses 2 through 3, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it says here, to the church of God which is at Corinth. Very interesting. Again, Fee points this out. I wouldn't have thought of this. But notice the phrase, it says, to the church of God in Corinth. Notice that Paul subtly changed from in Thessalonians where he said, to the church of the Thessalonians in God. And he did so to prove to those at Corinth that the church belongs to God, not to them. It's very important because these people, one of their big issues is they are prideful. And they have, because of their arrogance of their own wisdom and knowledge, they are almost acting in, if you think about it, they're acting as a judge to Paul. And Paul is the apostle. He's the one who speaks for Christ. Paul has to rein them in and say, no, It's the church of God. It's not your church. And so very important here that Paul, in fact, reigns them in. I'm going to continue on this same verse. Notice the phrase, too, that they're sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now, this idea of being sanctified in Christ, the term for sanctified there is in the perfect passive. Perfect tense, meaning it happened in the past, it was completed, and its effect is still with us today. That's the idea of the perfect tense. The passive indicates, remember, active voice, I hit the ball. Passive voice, I get hit by the ball. Are you with me? The ball hits me. Okay, so this is being done from an outside force or outside being, and so therefore we know that it is God who has sanctified them. Now, here's an issue, it's a very small issue, that I would probably disagree slightly with Fee. And the discussion is, does in Christ... It either can mean by Christ Jesus, in other words, Christ is the one who sanctified us, or it is in the sphere of. Now, the reason why I like in the sphere of is that correlates to what we learned in the book of Colossians. There's this idea that God would set you apart and he places you in the sphere of the Son. Now, how do we determine? Gordon Fee thinks that it should be translated sanctified by Christ. Okay, in other words, Jesus Christ is the agent by which we are sanctified. It's, it's his sanctification. The problem that I would have with that, and it's a small issue, is that God the Father is normally the one who elects the saints to be in his Son. I see sanctified here as being a, a term indicating being set apart. 
Okay, And the idea there would be that you were set apart in the elect sense and you were placed into the Son. And we see examples of that, for instance, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Who had that uh, passage? Yeah, Reynolds. So therefore, my whole point in this is it's actually the Father who is doing the sanctifying, who's setting apart, but it's in the sphere of his Son because the Father, again, is normally the one who elects in the Scriptures. Yeah, go ahead and read that, Reynolds. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in yes. love. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so the, right there we see that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And I think that's the same idea here. And one, another reason I think we can determine that is because by calling, notice the by calling, fee is right that that is their vocation. The reason I'm getting at that is, notice if, let's just say this has to do with the election. Well, this seems to have to do with the election as well. Well, it would be kind of redundant, would it not? It seems to me. But it's interesting, fee is saying that, and I think he's right, that the idea of calling here, the emphasis isn't just on their elect status, but it's on the idea that them being saints, and how does it word? Yeah, that them being saints right here is their calling. So what was Paul's calling? Well, he was an apostle. What is their calling? Well, they're saints, therefore they better listen to Paul. He is the one who sits over them and, in fact, has the authority of God in their lives. Uh, Paul's thankfulness continues Verses 4 through 8, Paul continues in saying, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." It's interesting, the speech that he's talking about here, it comes from Lagos. It's actually used as a pejorative because in chapters 1 through 4, the, the speech that is the wisdom of the Corinthians is juxtaposed to the wisdom, or is against, I should say, the wisdom of the cross. Okay, So remember 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power and wisdom of God. You see, their wisdom and their speech or their logos, their knowledge was deficient, and that's exactly what they were boasting in. Okay, so it's actually used as a pejorative here in the first four chapters. And then also the knowledge. Notice the knowledge is this gnosis, and again, that's something they were boasting in. And what's interesting in these passages that I'm going to have you read in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, and 13, 2, and 14, 6, we see the knowledge that we should all want actually comes from God, not ourselves. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, it says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And it goes on, it says, To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit. Um, Bob had talked about this abuse of this idea this word of knowledge. None of us really know what that means. But what's interesting is Paul is attributing, if you're going to have knowledge that matters for eternity, the knowledge is from Christ. It's from God. It's not from your own spiritual prowess. It's not from you having some sort of innate ability to know something 
more than your brother or sister. So in fact, he's relying upon God's grace. And we see the same thing in 13.2. 1 Corinthians 13.2, this is, remember, the, the idea if you don't love. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not love, I have nothing, or I am nothing, rather. Remember, true doctrine and true knowledge that comes from God, that comes from Christ, always brings us to love God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and love our neighbor as ourself. In fact, that's going to be a big issue in 1 Corinthians 8, because if the Corinthians really love their brother or sister as themselves, then they will not engage in tempting them by eating um, or partaking in sacrifices and um, or um, eating meat that was sacrificed to the idols in their presence that may, in fact, tempt them to fall back into their idolatrous ways. Okay? So that becomes a big issue. So true knowledge always leads us to love. And in fact, that's why in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, that type of knowledge is from man, the knowledge that leads you to tempt or to abuse your brother or sister. Also, notice this phrase here. It says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, this phrase can be better rendered actually this way. Our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, namely that the spiritual gifts that you were given were evidence of your calling. So, in other words, the idea was Paul is telling them that all of the gifts that they were given, the knowledge that they did have, the wisdom that they did have, it wasn't their own doing. In fact, it was a gift from God. And because it was a gift from God, it was actually evidence that they were, in fact, the saints. And so, again, the big point, though, is they should not be boasting about it. Testimony, interestingly enough, is actually used um, a few times anyway for the gospel. And I just wanted to show you where that's seen. Um, did I give these passages out? Anybody have 1 Corinthians 2.1? How about 2 Thessalonians 1.10? Ah, we have a winner. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. All right. Yeah, so there the testimony is synonymous with the gospel. So I just want everybody to see that. Sometimes the term testimony is synonymous with the term gospel, and that's actually how it's being used here in this passage as well. Now, his thankfulness continues, and notice he says that Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will confirm you to the end blameless in the day of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gordon Fee talks about this idea of awaiting, and it comes from Apodecami. And he says this in his commentary. He says, Salvation for Paul was primarily an eschatological reality. Now let me just stop there. What was the problem with those at Corinth? They believed that they, in fact, had arrived at their desired goal, which was superior wisdom, and superior knowledge. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the ultimate goal. And one of the reasons they believe this is because, remember, everything physical was bad. They weren't waiting for a physical restoration. They weren't waiting for a physical resurrection. They thought they had everything they wanted, okay, and and needed, and therefore they were arrogant. And Paul has to say, no, the perfection is still coming. And so Fee continues, says, this had begun with Christ's coming and is to be consummated by his imminent return. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about this idea of imminence. It's something that we see in this term apodecami. And we see, for instance, the idea of God waiting in the days of Noah. And the same term is used with apodecami 
1 Peter 3.20, the spirits who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so again, this idea of kept waiting was in fact the patience of God. He was waiting for this imminent event that is in fact the construction of the ark at which time there would be then him pouring out his wrath through the flood upon the world. We see the same thing in Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that's apodecamai. And it's actually synonymous with prosdecamai. Now let me just show you how this is used. And I talked about this in Titus, but in Luke 2.25, a very synonymous term is used. And it's interesting because Simeon, he was a man, it says, that was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, the reason I'm putting up all these verses, I want you to notice in each case, uh, well, not this one, because this has happened in the past. This is an imperfect, but this is in the present tense. This is in the present tense as well, which indicates current, ongoing a process of eager expectation. Okay. Well, the point being is, if in fact there are certain events that must happen before the coming of the Lord, how could you presently be expecting eagerly? And that's a case, again, that I think lends itself towards the imminent return of Christ. It's not something that's going to see certain uh, things that happen before it. Uh, Titus 2.13 talks about the looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And again, that looking is prosdecamai. It has to do with ongoing, continuously looking and expecting the coming of the Lord, and it's present. It's happening right now. Currently, we see this idea of imminence under attack, and I just want to talk about an idea that has been put forth by a man named Marv Rosenthal. And he says this in his book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church, on page 282. He says, A careful appeal to verses said to teach imminency, and then he writes, this is his note here, he says, no prophesied events must occur before the rapture, will reveal that what they actually teach is expectancy. Now what I want to do is I want to just talk about this idea of two different categories, because expectancy and imminency are really talking about two adjectives that just relate to two different groups. Let me explain. The idea of being imminent has to do with an event, whereas the idea of being expectant is an adjective that has to do with people's attitude. So, in fact, Marv Rosenthal has not solved the issue or done away with imminence, but rather all he's done is he's just switched category. Yes, the imminent, what is imminent is, in fact, the event of the Lord's return, but what is expectant is, in fact, the people's attitude. And so what he did is he just changed categories there. Yeah, Mike, you got something. When you talk about Simeon, he was expecting... Uh, yeah. And... There was a lot that had to happen before his eschatological seeing of the Lord. He did. I'm, I'm sorry. Say, say it again. His eschatological what? I didn't his, hear. His eschatological seeing of of the Lord's return. Okay, so but, in Simeon's case, yeah. it is his attitude. Which event was it that he thought uh, was imminent? Yeah, well, let, let's read that because I think that's interesting. Let's just turn our books to Luke chapter 2, verses, uh, around verse 25 here. And what you'll see is that what he was expecting was to see the Messiah born, actually, and that, in fact, he knew that he would not die before he would see him. In fact, let me just um, 
start yeah, right in verse 25. It just says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And this says in verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the idea there is that he would see Jesus as, as an infant, and therefore it was imminent to him because he knew that he would not he, he would not die. He knew that. So therefore he could be constantly, if he had breath in his lungs, and he knew that he had to have breath in his lungs until he would see the Messiah. So he was constantly, every day, expecting maybe this is the day. And that's why prosdecamide to me is so kind of a neat tie-in with Titus 2.13 because if you're, if Simeon was constantly expecting daily to see the Messiah born, and that same term is used for us expecting the Lord's return, you and I can daily expect the Lord's return as well. And to me, that's a blessed hope. And in fact, in my opinion, it doesn't exclude necessarily other points, um, rapture views. In other words, it doesn't necessarily exclude post-tribulation rapture. It, it would go nicer with, in my opinion, a, a pre-trib view but, for instance, let me just show you some of the things that I've been wrestling with lately. Let me just say this. In John 21, you see the idea that Peter is going to meet his death. Okay, And the critique is, well, if that, in fact, was going to happen, how could the Lord return before Peter died? So was the event necessarily imminent? Well, one rebuttal of that rebuttal that I would give is that, remember, we didn't have CNN and Fox News back then. Paul may not have been aware of Peter's death, and therefore, in fact, for weeks. The whole point is, let me just give you a few more scholars here. Scholar after scholar is looking at these, these passages that have to do with expecting, and it's in the Pauline literature. We see it, I think, all over the Bible that this idea of imminence indicates that these apostles really did believe that Christ could come in their lifetime, and it was at any moment. In fact, Lenski says this, and I've heard Bob mention Lenski's name before. He says the simple fact is that Paul did not know when Christ would return. He was in the exact position in which we are. All that he knew and all that we know is that Christ may come at any moment. Okay, And so that's been the blessed hope for every Christian, for every generation, and um, it should be exciting to all of us. That's the next thing on God's eschatological calendar. And so the next thing that Paul wants to talk about then is God's faithfulness. In verse 9 he says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice here God's faithfulness ensures they will be found guiltless in that day. Now that day is a reference back to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes for us back in verse 8. And also notice that this called again has to do with the effectual call. Okay? And this idea that you were called into fellowship, I think it's error's passive, but nonetheless, it has to do with something that happened in the past. And this effectual calling we see, for instance, in Romans 8.30, Acts 16.14. But let me just say this, because too often I tend to focus just on the effectual calling. There also is a universal call. The universal call is any time we proclaim the gospel, like Mark 1.15, Jesus says to all men, in fact, it's a command to repent and to believe the gospel. That is the universal call. Um, we see it in Acts 2.21 where Peter preaches at Pentecost. He cites Joel uh, chapter 2. And at the very end, he performs this midrash where he says, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the rest of his sermon is about what? Proving who is that Lord that we should call upon. And of course, it's Jesus. And the supreme evidence is the empty tomb. 
Okay? So that would be a general call, though. Who are the universal call? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Did I give Romans 10, 14 through 15 to anybody? Oh, I, yeah, Dick. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Yeah, so this has to do with the universal call, yep. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Yeah, so here that just shows the... Yeah, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) This, uh, This is the point... Lately, I've been hearing from a few unhappy Arminians <laughs> that are, you know, wanting to think that the doctrine of election means something other than what we say it means, right. that God chose us. And what I've been saying to them is that if we can agree on universal call, that's, that's our point of unity. Yep. If we can agree that salvation is through the cross of Jesus Christ, that we must preach Christ and his death for sins and his resurrection and that Romans 10, 14 and 15 that we sent the preachers to, to preach the gospel, God is going to save people. Yeah. And That's whether right, they're saved because God called them yeah. effectually or they're saved because they decided they wanted to believe, they made a free will choice, the same group was saved at the end of the day. Sure. All right? And so I would say to those who are unhappy with us because we believe in the doctrine of election, would would you please agree with us about preaching the universal call? Right, right. And if you preach it and we preach it, God's going to save everybody he's going to save. That's right. And then when you... When we get to heaven, then you can ask God whether you chose him or he chose you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, well said. That's right. Very, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and just for those of you who are Arminian maybe in, in, in thinking, let me just give you a passage to me that's always been powerful. And I started my life as an Arminian. Um, I actually was an airline pilot. I flew with a guy who challenged me in the scriptures. And we would actually fly and we'd read. And uh, a passage that was powerful to me was Romans 8.30 which um, I think Paul says it this way. He says, For those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those whom he justified, he also then glorified. And notice, it's all past tense. It's all heiress. God has done it all. And so those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. And all of that is an act of God. That would be the effectual calling. And that is, in fact, the only way that, in my opinion, any of us are saved. However, God uses means. And that's why... Blessed is the feet who bring good tidings. People must go, in fact, proclaim the message in order for it to be believed. But who is it that ends up believing? Acts 13, 48, for as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It was those, okay? And again, it's God's doing. So again, friends, we see an effectual calling and a universal call, and they are both needed and and both present in our gospel. So with that, I'm sorry I left us with so little time, but anybody want to take a question or comment mike you you have something yeah just uh getting back to this imminence thing yeah if you look at uh, luke 17 or yeah seventeen twenty two, and it says and he said to the disciples the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it and then he goes into all these things that will happen mm-hmm. so I think that's a statement against the imminent return. Okay. 
because they're desiring these things and certain things have to happen. It won't happen until these things happen. Sure. You know, I'll just react to that. The idea of imminence does not mean that it has to happen tomorrow or immediately. In fact, the idea of imminence just means simply is an event that is hanging over our heads. For instance, we see in Matthew 25 as well that we are to be prepared for possible delay. And so it's this idea where the, the idea of imminence has to do, in my opinion, with, yes, Christ can come at any moment, but we have to be also prepared for possible delay. An imminent event cannot be known as far as its timing. It just simply is something that is it's imminent. <laughs> it will happen at any moment, and we do not know when. Yeah, we have a question back there. Um, mine was also on the imminency. I guess I kind of saw it as they're both describing the same thing, where imminence is it's coming, and the expectancy is our reaction to That's that right. coming. And that um, I guess since God is the creator of time, he doesn't see time the same way we do. And oh. so it's you know the next second for him because he, he, see, he doesn't see it the same way we do. And so what's, you know, 2,000 years out for us, it's, I guess, it just doesn't affect him the same way. Sure, sure. Thank you. Yeah, Patrick's got something. Um, if what you're saying about the Corinthians is true, it sounds like this letter from Paul is very contrary to some of their worldview and kind of the whole their whole way of living. Yeah, if, if they had any humility and submission to Paul at all, this would seem to totally change their way of life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Did it right. or would it or did, were they not totally submissive to Paul? Yeah, in fact, you're right. He has to get Corinth out of the Corinthian, and um, that is one of the big issues with this book. They are uh, believing in a worldview that is completely contrary to Christianity. The battle at Corinth is a battle for the gospel. He is battling for their souls. And so you're absolutely right. He has to challenge them in all of these doctrines and all of these areas, whether it be their misunderstanding of the importance of the body, whether there be their misunderstanding of where true wisdom and true knowledge comes from, their misunderstanding of who an apostle is, their misunderstanding of what salvation is about. All of it has to be challenged. Yet this introduction, and I'm so glad you asked that question because it gives me a chance to summarize. So thank you for playing along. It was a good segue. The summary in this section that we see is Paul expects that of them. Why? Because they were called out. And those who are the called out saints will heed the warnings from an apostle because they are the Lord's word and therefore they will persevere. And that's what he expects of them. So thank you and and the check's in the mail. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. With that, I think we're out of time, my friends. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. Yeah.